It was several years ago, but we were uh, vacationing in Santa Cruz, California with our four kids when we noticed a, a bumper sticker with these words on it, play the accordion, go to jail, it's the law. Um, my apologies to accordion players and lovers uh, in the room, but it just struck a funny note with our family, and we've kind of said that ever since then. It's kind of funny because it sort of expresses it as if the law is always that crystal clear. You do this, it's wrong, and the consequences are direct. The problem with obeying the law and issues of the law, it's not always that true, is it? It's the law. On a more serious note, and perhaps a slightly more controversial note, <laughs> This whole issue of the travel ban on travelers, on immigrants and refugees, those holding visas, green cards, and those not, has come as a result of an executive order, and then there has been pushback from district courts of appeals, and it has asked us to raise the question then of what, what really is the law in this case, uh, with this court putting on a, a... I get confused sometimes when it's a stay on the halt on the ban to prevent... What, 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 is that good or bad, Right? <laughs> It's been a little bit confusing, but when we have something like this with an executive order and then courts putting a halt to it, we, we trust the balance of power, but we wonder where is really the right mode of compliance and obedience. It's the law. It's the law. Obey or face the consequences isn't always so easy. And if I might risk bringing up a slightly even more controversial matter, when we think of the heartbreaking deaths of Eric Garner or Trayvon Martin or Laquan McDonald or Michael Brown, along with the countless stories that we hear of racial profiling, I might add there are stories of racial profiling in this room if we gave time for people to share. And so we hear these stories and it raises questions then about equal treatment under the law. It's the law, break it, face consequences. But sometimes there's a variation of how that law is given and how it's interpreted. We say sometimes it's the law, just obey and you won't get into trouble, but that doesn't always work for everybody. So in our culture and in our system, the question of it's the law, obey it, or face consequences is, is a reality, but it's interpreted in different ways. And so... Sometimes we might want to say then, well, when we come to the Bible, isn't it much more clear? Well, yes. And no. <laughs> and our reading from Deuteronomy that Roy just did, and thank you for your introduction to that too, Roy, of speaking of it as sort of a summary of the law. The children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land and they're urged to obey the law. And if they don't, there are consequences. Just a subtle little word that says, you will be destroyed. That's a consequence, isn't it? <laughs> But it's not so much a lightning bolt from heaven destruction as much as something that would happen internal if they're not following the ways of God. But even here, the words go deeper than simply an external, external compliance with the law. Just do the right things and you'll be fine. I know you're fearful, but you'll live in fear that you might step out of line, but if you don't step out of line, you'll be fine. That's not what God wanted. God wanted them to experience his love and his grace. He says, I offer you life. Moses says to the people, or God says to Moses, choose life, choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Moses here is giving not just the law and asking for compliance, but he's giving a reason to obey the law, that we might experience the goodness of life that God has given us within the boundaries that he sets for our good. 
You see, there's something deeper in this Deuteronomy reading, something deeper than simply obey the law. There's something deeper going on. The psalm reading for this morning, I'm not going to read, read it other than to reference it. It's Psalm 119, which some of you may know is the, the longest psalm in, of the 150 psalms. It's also the longest chapter of the Bible. And it's broken into divisions of about 10 or 11 verses each. And this morning, the first eight verses establish that. But the entire theme of Psalm 119 is about the wonder of God's law. Keeping God's statutes. It expresses, the psalmist expresses love for it, about following the law, respecting the, the law. And as it we woven through the words of Psalm 119 comes desire to make it part of how we live with God, not just as something imposed on the outside. In a sense, it's the same thing with the gospel reading today, which we'll read in parts. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addresses some of the law, bringing a, a freshness of interpretation to it. And it's a freshness of interpretation that it does not undermine the law or soften it, uh, nor does it impose it with a heavy hand. Rather, Jesus takes it deeper into who we are, really, as growing disciples. And that's what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. How might you live as a fully devoted follower of Christ and as a disciple? And so we're going to take a look at these verses in the middle of chapter 5 of Matthew and say this, that while Jesus made it clear, Jesus makes it clear that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament law, he does bring a fresh and authoritative interpretation that moves from a simple external compliance to the pure heart of a growing disciple. External compliance, and I just better keep track of the law to make sure I'm okay, to really an inner motivation to grow and to trust in Christ. So that's what we're going to look at. We'll look briefly at Jesus and this issue of authority and the authority of Jesus, and then we'll look at the disciple and hate, the disciple and desire, I didn't put the word sexual there, but that's there. <laughs> the disciples' marriage, and then fourthly, the disciples' honesty. Jesus speaks with great authority here, and we will, um, we will look at four of what are really six kind of reinterpretations that Jesus gives to the law. And in each of these, he uses the same formula. You have heard it said, dot, dot, dot. Jesus didn't say dot, 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 I did. But you have heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said in the law, you, but I tell you. In between uh, the earlier part of chapter 5 where we were last week with Let Your Light So Shine and this first one about murder, in between there, Jesus makes it clear that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He's saying, I haven't come to to mess with the law. I'm just giving you a, a, a better idea of what it really means. And so Jesus sets up a contrast with this formula when he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. But the contrast is not between the Old Testament and his teachings. The contrast is rather between this sort of, um, I'm going to say it again, this external interpretation that really the rabbis and the scribes of his day had set up. If you just keep these things, then you must be a good Jew, is kind of thing. If you can keep this and you look right, then you have kept the law. And Jesus is contrasting that and his interpretation, I guess you might say, of the spirit of the law. The external is the letter of the law, but Jesus says, I want to take you to the depth of the spirit of the law. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And it's something that goes deep within. An amazing thing that we really can't catch here, but in that day, the amazing thing is this this sort of expression of authority from Jesus. Jesus says, I, but I say to you. It's an emphatic uh, first person where he is saying he is placing himself in the highest level of authority. Jesus is putting himself equal with God when he says that in that culture. And they would have caught it. It was absolute blasphemy for him to say that if he was not the son of God. 
I say to you. And also note the formula is, you have heard it said, not it is written. Did you catch that? Jesus often will say, it is written, when Jesus is appealing to the authority of the word for what he's saying. But here he says something different. He says, it, you, have, you have heard it said. And otherwise he's saying, you have heard this interpretation, but I'm going to tell you the right interpretation. But I tell you, what Jesus says is the law, but it's a law that goes deep inside the growing disciple. Now I'm going to hit these four sections here and, and, and each of them could be a whole sermon on murder, adultery, simple topics like divorce and oaths. <laughs> and we're not going to give a sermon on each of them, but I want them to look at Jesus' interpretation of each that helps us look not just at what it says from the outside, but what the spirit of the law says about the heart of God in our hearts. And so first we look at the disciple and hate or murder. Let me read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And I will not make you stand. We've developed a, a habit here of standing for the reading of the gospel. The rest of the word's important. We stand for the gospel and respect for the word. But I'm reading about four times. And it might keep you more awake if I have you stand up and down four times. But let's just stick with me on this, okay? <laughs> you've, heard it said that it, you've, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is taking this beyond no murder, and he's taking it to the place of respect for life. He's taking it beyond no murder and taking it to a deeper place of a respect for people and a respect for life. Jesus is, uh, is not just prohibiting the obviously bad act of murder here, but he's getting at this attitude of, a, of hate or this attitude of ill will inside, a hate and a disdain for another. Often it comes in the midst of anger. That word raka means fool. Actually, literally, it means empty head, which perhaps that's in your toolbox of things you might use for somebody. Um, but he says, to call somebody an empty head is to hold them, in a sense, in contempt. And Jesus says that, that the person who does that is in danger. You talked about De- Deuteronomy getting destroyed. In danger of the fires of hell, is what he said. I mean, sorry, just for emphasis. But that's what Jesus says. Just calling somebody an empty head. I suppose we should make a note here about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and his use of hyperbole and overstatement. doesn't mean these things aren't important, but sometimes he states these in such a strong way to say, this is so important, not that you comply with it, but that you know deep down in what, what could result of this. That the anger at someone to call them a fool and to feel such ill will eventually could lead to the place of anger, if, or of, of murder, if it plays it way, its way out. And so Jesus has these points of hyperbole. We'll get to the plucking your eye out part in a little bit here. What Jesus is saying is a disciple is one who respects all of life. We talk about the sanctity of life and the dignity of life, and we think of the unborn, and that's very important, but we're to have respect for every human life, even the people that annoy us. Especially the people that annoy us with whom we may disagree or who may 
cause us to experience great anger. Jesus is saying that anything that could eventually lead to murder is sin. So Jesus is saying, get down to the inside of what's motivating you. He's also teaching, I think, here about anger as well. The Apostle Paul addresses that so beautifully in chapter 4 of Ephesians, where he says to be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. He acknowledges, well, it will be angry, but, but in that anger, make sure that you resolve it. And a little bit later in Ephesians 4, he talks about the power of our words, the power of our words to destroy, or the power of our words to build up. Jesus also speaks here of opportunities for reconciliation. He talks about the negative impact of unresolved anger and disagreements that can have on the spirit of worship. If you have something against a brother or sister, go take care of it before you come to worship. It's not just that nobody's going to check you at the door on that. It's our hearts. Yesterday, uh, Friday night and yesterday was the first of four sessions for, I want to say four, four sessions for uh, Stephen ministry training. Uh, you know, six of our members, six of you are doing a 50-hour training for, to be Stephen ministers. And uh, our second uh, module is yesterday morning, Melissa New taught it, about our feelings and, and, and what happens with unresolved feelings when we stuff them. What do they do? They affect our relationship. They can affect our worship as well. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying the same thing. Get deep down inside and be re- renewed there as well. The second one that Jesus comes to is the disciple and desire. Matthew five twenty seven. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. A good argument for not just saying, Lord, give me a word in doing this, right? (laughs) But seriously, Jesus is talking about the severity of this. What Jesus is doing here is he's moving beyond this call to no adultery to a call for purity, a purity within. Jesus is referring here, when he talks about lusting, he's referring to more than just a passing glance, the noticing that we just do. We're wired up as sexual beings, and we are going to notice things. But he's talking about what some of us may call the second look and the third look that eventually goes to that place of sort of a willful, calculated stare that can arouse a desire. Some of you are old enough to remember the interview of President Jimmy Carter in 1976 when he confessed that he had, quote, looked on a lot of women with lust and that he had, quote, committed adultery in my heart many times. Unfortunately for Jimmy Carter, he became kind of a laughing stock over that. It became great fodder for the late night comics and others. But for those of us who know the word and those of us that know that Jimmy Carter is a follower of Christ and was a Bible teacher at Plains Bible Church or Plains Baptist Church, he knew what he was talking about. He knew what Jesus was talking about here. And we know it too, don't we? The things that come from deep down inside. And this is not just about personal purity. It's not just being a holy, holy person. And certainly it's not about being a holier person than somebody else. But it's about the impact that some of this stuff, when we nurse it and allow it to happen over and over again, the impact it can have on our relationships. And in a sense, Jesus is talking about marriage here. Obviously, adultery is an offense to marriage. 
But even harboring these things and allowing these impurities to come in can affect relationships. Pornography is not a victimless activity. It harms the heart of the looker, the addict, and it damages the relationships that ought to be the ones that are most important by distracting and refocusing in the wrong way. Most of us know that it's hard and that the temptations can be strong. And so Jesus addresses this deep down and even calls here for deliberate measures. Drastic, actually, gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. And again, here is hyperbole and overstatement, but Jesus is calling us to action. Calling us to call upon the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. To put our places, if we're struggling here, put ourselves in places of accountability and whatever we can do to have a healthy mind and therefore have healthy relationships. As a growing disciple, we need to do everything we can to make sure it's healthy relationships and this issue of purity is so important. Thirdly is the disciples' marriage. Matthew 5, 31 says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this one has been debated a lot over the ages, hasn't it? And even as I say these words, it comes to rest in so many lives right in this room. I know. For those of you that have experienced the pain of divorce, either yourself or those near and dear to you, remember this is spoken by the one who brings forgiveness and grace. Remember this is spoken by the one who is the Lord of second chances and third chances. Remember this is spoken by the one who says, I can heal brokenness and bring new life, even in the aftermath of pain and loss. The memory of that pain and loss might not ever go away, but I can bring healing and new life. But let me remind all of us that it's also spoken by the one who is overstating to make a point. And the point here is about moving beyond divorce to a high view of marriage. In some ways, the old interpretation of the law had given a lower value to marriage by making it easy to exit. And Jesus lifts it then to this level of a covenant for life. A high, high level of faithfulness that ought not be broken. What God has joined together, let no one ever tear apart. And those of you that experience divorce know what that tearing of flesh feels like. This passage is not intended to heap guilt on the divorced, nor is it intended to be used and wielded to prohibit remarriage in any situation or only in certain ones. But it is here to encourage the married to take their vows seriously and to take the hard but necessary steps to build their marriage with the strength God gives. And those who are remarried after divorce know this even better than those of us who are still married to our first wife. This high view of marriage and the hard work to make it work. It's also a passage, really, in a way, about the worth of women. Under the old interpretation of law, a man could divorce his wife if she did anything he did not like, even if she burned his dinner. I don't know anything about what happens when he burns her dinner, because I know a lot of you guys cook, but that's how low of you. The man could do that, but the woman couldn't. Let me read this from Bible commentator um, Myron Augsburger as he 
talks about this passage. He says, in this passage, Jesus, by implication, is elevating the status of women. In rabbinic prayers in those days, men thanked God daily for not having been born a Gentile, not having been born a slave, and not having been born a woman. In Jesus' time, women had such limited rights that a man could divorce his wife simply by stating it several times in front of witnesses and by giving her a written statement. Jesus here is correcting this practice, emphasizing the dignity and worth of women and men equally by calling each to the highest covenant in their marriage. Jesus lists the status of women and says, you are equals as you build the strength of this relationship. Don't water it down, he says. Walking as disciples in the covenant of marriage. Did I clear up everything about what the Bible says about divorce? No, sorry, we'll get that another time, but... I want you to see this is about this high view of marriage and this status of women as well. Fourthly, and the last one, is the disciples' honesty. Matthew 5.33 says, Again, you have heard, it said, heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by God's throne, or by earth, for it is is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. (laughs) Jesus here is moving beyond oaths to simply truthful and clear speech. Now the whole business of oath needs a lot of explanation here, and we still use them in certain places even in our culture. But what had happened in Jesus' day was that the Jewish leadership over the years had developed sort of a a hierarchy of values for swearing in oaths. And some oaths, depending on whether you swore by the name of God or by the name of Jerusalem or or whatever, some different oaths had different values to them. And some were more binding than others depending on what you had sworn by. (laughs) And what happened had been this intricate system of being able to say that you were promising to do something, but it kind of... Um, had a had a, a degree of um, intensity to it, I guess you might say. So it's sort of like saying the truth or sort of saying the truth or saying part of the truth. We played two truths and a lie on Friday night at our Stephen ministry gathering. You ever played that game before? You take two things about you that are true and, and one that's false. And this is the first time I've heard anybody try to get away with this one saying their false one was, I have four siblings, when they only have three. I mean, that's kind of like the truth but not. You know what I mean? Anyway, seriously, um, I won't say who said that. You know who you are. Um, but seriously here, what Jesus is getting at is, is just simply about truthful speech. He said, you don't need this elaborate system to, to decide how truthful it is. Just let your truth be truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's also something in this about respecting the name of God. You see, because God's name, or Jehovah, became part of the system of oaths, it began then to turn to what more and more sounded like and was profanity. And we even hear it to this day. Sometimes we may say it with all of that it was within us, and we mean it when we say, I swear by the name of God. But more often than not, (laughs) when we say, I swear to God, it's an expression and it verges and it borders on profanity. It seems harmless, but it misuses the name of a God who simply calls us to be honest people. Speak truthfully, says Jesus. If we're talking about our inner life of integrity, 
if we're talking about respect for others, if we're talking about honoring God, if we're talking about growing deeper as followers and disciples of Jesus, then we need to learn to speak truthfully. It's the law. (laughs) All of this is the law. But I think the word to all of us also is not to try to write it off or explain it away. And if it sounds like I've tried to do that, please forgive me. But the purpose of the law is to take it deep within in our connection with God, our Heavenly Father. To take deep within our call to be followers of Jesus and let him mold and form and shape the kind of people we are, not just the way we look by the laws that we obey. Jesus makes it very clear that he did not come to write off the law or to abolish the law. But he brings this fresh and he brings an authoritative, remember that, the authority again of Jesus that moves from this simple external uh, keeping of the law to the pure heart of the growing disciple. And I just want to leave you with this one question as we close in prayer now. Where today's text calling you to grow as a disciple? The text that we heard from Deuteronomy, the one I referenced from Psalm 119, and particularly these parts of Matthew. Is there somewhere where the Spirit's saying, you know, this is a place to go a little bit deeper? This is a place to attend to in terms of some feelings you have about another, in terms of our our thought life and the desire for a deeper purity, in terms of what I might bring to my marriage to make sure I'm strengthening that covenant, in terms of what I might say and how I speak it, that my words would be words of truth. Let's give that a moment to think about it and pray about it, and then we'll close with a song. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that, and when your word, that your word sometimes is difficult. I confess, Lord, that I thought of preaching on another text today. <laughs> but I'm grateful that you called us to dig into these words that are sometimes troubling for us and confusing for us of what really is the law and what is right. But Lord, we see a little bit of that rightness as we look deep in our heart and the kind of person you're calling us to be people of purity, people of integrity, people of love, people of high commitment. Just like you. We want to be like you. Lord, guide us as we walk this walk and as we honor you in all things. Amen.